Why don't you guys um, open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Luke this morning, the book of Luke. Um, I want to read a little passage, Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 35. We're actually starting a brand new series today, uh, going on all the way through and up to Easter itself. So it'll be a seven-week series, and believe it or not, we are already moving into that season of Easter And uh, we're excited to see what God has in store for us. Uh, This new series that we're going to be looking at is just simply called Jesus' Final Words from the Cross. The big idea is we'll be focusing upon the certain uh, and very strategic and important language and words and terminology that Jesus says from the cross. So if you want to think of it this way, what are the most important, most significant words that a person just before they know they're going to die are going to say? Jesus has a lot to say, and it's, it's actually recorded for us. So we don't have to guess or try to figure it out. Uh, the uh, New Testament authors actually tell us, record for us, seven statements that Jesus says, and they're incredibly significant and important and hopefully will help bring our lives a uh, deep sense of encouragement and centering in terms of who God is and who he's called us to be. So what I want to do right now is I want to read this little segment, and we'll get into a little bit more of the bigger, broader theme of this, not only teaching, but over the next seven weeks, a series of teachings that we'll be looking at as we jump into this. If you guys would not mind uh, standing with me one last time, I promise, before we're done. I want to just read the passage, Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 35, and then we will get to work. When they brought Jesus to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right And one on his left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the scoffers, or the rulers, scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, why don't you save yourself? There was also an inscription over him, and this read, This is the king of the Jews, and this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we come to you right now. We ask, God, just in this moment that you would open our hearts to hear uh, these words, maybe in a a new light like we've never heard before. God, I pray that whatever conceptions or ideas or thoughts or images that we thought about who you were, uh, God, we pray that they would be updated or replaced with the word that's been spoken to us even right now. God, we need hope in this moment more than ever. And while we're praying as well, God, we just want to remember uh, the the church that resides, that represents you in Ukraine and in Russia and that part of the world that is uh, feeling a deep, deep uh, ache in their soul over the war and the pain and the loss and the grief and the fear and the anxiety that's going on right now. Lord, we ask you, would you just be near to them in ways like never before? So, God, uh, speak to our hearts this morning, we pray, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And all said, amen. So, a quick little uh, intro into the series, uh, as I mentioned in that reference, that Jesus had about seven different phrases or words that he said just before he died. So, the next slide, I'll kind of show you some of the way these kind of play out. Uh, throughout all four gospel accounts. He has a word on forgiveness, which is what we'll be taking a look at here today, a word about hope and salvation, a word on affection and anguish, longing and suffering, victory, belonging, all of these things, again, we will get to over the next several weeks. But during these days of what we would typically call Lent, our hope would be to invite you into uh, really recentering your life around 
the purpose of God in this world. And really, in particular, thinking about and considering and thinking deeply upon what it means that God came into this world through his son Jesus and suffered. He took upon himself the pain, the loss, the guilt, the, the, the difficulty, the hardship upon himself, ultimately death, for you. And my hope would be that in this season that we would think carefully and meditatively upon what God has to speak to us through this. Again, there's a lot that can be said, but what I want to do right now is I want to begin to really just jump into the text, and then we will spend some time considering and thinking about all this, and then we will conclude with a time of, as we typically do, partaking of the Lord's Supper and remembering the death of Jesus as we partake of that together. What I want to do as we begin to look at this is I really want to focus on two specific aspects of this text. So number one is I want to look at how the people that were around Jesus at that moment that Luke records for us, how they responded to the death of Jesus, this incredible tragedy. Um, We'll talk a little bit about what crucifixion is, just in case we need an updating in terms of our understanding or familiarity as to what that is. Again, I think especially if you are somewhat familiar with the story of Jesus's death, um, I would just basically say that you and I, all of us, we're in danger of becoming overly familiar with it. In other words, we just tend to think of crucifixion as just a horrific event that took place a long time ago. And Jesus, he was kind of uh, misfortunate enough to have to go through all that. And that's a bummer. What are we going to have for lunch? And what I would suggest is that I think God maybe wants to update our understanding as to the, the, the significance and the impact of that and why this happened. Um, and as we begin to look at this story, so number one, we'll take a look at how the people responded to this. But secondly, what I really want to focus on is how Jesus actually responded to this tragedy. So let's jump into the text and just really, first of all, take a look at how the people in Jesus' day responded to this tragedy. Now, first of all, I want for us to just think carefully about how human beings in general tend to deal with deep, hard, gnarly, tragic types of circumstances. And I would suggest that uh, that we as a culture really don't know how to think carefully, hard, critically about deep tragedy. And I think part of that is because we are just insulated from a lot of deep, gnarly stuff. Um, Again, that's not in any way to minimize the type of suffering or trauma that you as a human being have gone through. But I would say that in a sense, there's a tendency for us to sort of... uh, to, to not take it in and consider it in a deep way. We have a tendency to turn away and be distracted by all sorts of types of circumstances around us. Very easily be able to move on from it. We have multiple options and opportunities to be able to turn away from suffering without having to face it for a long period of time. Um, I had posted on my social media this past week, uh, just I'm sure maybe some of you guys had seen it or some of you guys had at least seen the commercial that was going around where the image was what took place in Ukraine. You can hear these ominous sirens going on over the city of Kiev. And then all of a sudden it kind of cuts to like a commercial break. It was like Applebee's or some, and, and the, the, it, um, the, the country music wasn't even the worst part of it. It was just the fact that it was like, we don't even know how to deal with this type of tragedy. It's like for any length of time we're having to be subjected to watch some sort of tragedy, uh, it cuts to something that's sort of happy and jingly and funny and just uh, it alleviates any need to have to think long and hard about this. Honestly, I think this is one of the reasons why um, we like, um, I don't know, like TV shows or movies that have a deep, intense plot line. Because there's something unique about that. Because we know we're safe watching it. 
I just, I don't even know why this kind of popped up on my YouTube, but I actually watched it yesterday. It was like a little clip on the movie Sicario, if you're familiar with that storyline at all. It's gnarly, it's dark, it's filled with death. And I was just like, whoa, this is, this is heavy. I don't, I'm not sure. Like I said, maybe it's just too revealing of as to what my YouTube, you know, playlist typically looks like. But the point of the matter is, back on track. Focus, Brian. But the point that I would make is that when we face these types of gnarly, gnarly things, there's a sense where we feel comfortable even watching this type of stuff because we know it's not real. It's kind of like riding a roller coaster versus being in an incredible car accident where you're going to die. The roller coaster offers the thrill of an intense car accident without the consequence of dying. There's something about that that our culture caters to. You can have the thrill of this intensity without actually having to face the consequence of death. Because that's how we fabricate it. So we make it. It's kind of the... The, the, the machinery that we live in. It's the matrix that we uh, occupy, the space that we live in. But the point that I would make is this, is that the real world that we live in uh, is filled with tragedy and hardship. And when it comes close to us, when it stares us in the eyes, how do we react? I would suggest that typically what we do as Westerners, we simply go to like another binge watch show on Netflix we scroll through our social media feeds mindlessly, like doom scrolling, just kind of just trying to find something new and fresh that will take our minds away from it to numb us. And that's the problem with it, is that when we consistently create a rhythm of doing that, approaching hardship, tragedy in that way, it does two things to us at least. Number one, it desensitizes us to the deep pain and hurt and anguish around us in this world. Secondly, it tends to dehumanize us. Or at least cause us, train us to look at other people with a dehumanized way. We don't necessarily and can never enter fully into the pain and tragedy of other people. And I would suggest in some ways it's kind of like the, the, the entertainment world around us is kind of like, it's kind of like the porn industry. It's there, it's cheap, it's free. It costs us a lot, though not monetarily necessarily. And in the end it desensitizes us. And I would suggest that that's, there's a different way for us to live that I think is, brings about greater wholeness and healing and hope for our world. And it's, it's a path that we have to really kind of listen to. And I think what Jesus offers here in the passage that we're, we just read and we're going to dig into a little bit deeper is an alternative. A different way to handle and to manage or to face deep tragedy. Before we get to that, I want to just take a look at the different ways in which the people around Jesus, because it's recorded for us, how they face tragedy. So in a lot of ways, they're not unlike us. So take a look at how they responded. So number one, we see that they were shocked and stunned. So this is taken up in verse uh, 35. It says that the people stood by watching. The word watching, there's actually, we get the English word uh, theater from. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Greek word because I'll sound silly. But the point of the matter is we get the English word theater from. What do you do at a theater? You just stare at something. And you're, you know, you're just like, like if there was no movie screen in front of you and you're just staring, you remove the movie screen, you're looking at someone like, what are you looking at? Have you ever seen someone like looking up in the sky and everybody starts kind of looking up at the sky? Like, what are you, what are you looking at? That's, that's the word theater. It's like, look, staring, shocked, amazed, uh, dumbfounded, not even able to really explain what's going on. So you have a group of people in the crowd that are just, they're dumbfounded. They're shocked as to what's happening. This is Jesus. 
Jesus was not a criminal. He doesn't fit the bill of a typical criminal. Uh, just, just weeks prior, Jesus would have been known as that guy that was going around teaching beautiful things, good things, true things. Jesus was the guy that wasn't just simply a teacher, but he was also a healer. He was actually bringing life and rehumanization to people that were stuck in very dehumanized uh, pathways of, of life. This is what Jesus was doing. So now here he is, uh, as we're told, on the cross being crucified. Again, we'll look at what crucifixion is in just a moment. But they're, they're shocked and they're stunned. Uh, the second thing is that we see there's another group of people we're told in verse 35 later on that these people looked at Jesus contemptuously. Now take a look at this. It says that these rulers, so this is a second category of people that are here. So again, you have the general public. In this context, Luke tells us there's also a category of people of rulers. This would be probably, you know, the elites, the, the rich, the upper class, the upper elite, the perhaps rulers of the synagogue, uh, religious leaders. It's not very specific. But the point of the matter is whoever these people were, these rulers, they scoffed at him saying he saved others, let him save himself. And the word that's actually use their scoff it's really interesting i kind of looked it up and it basically means to to uh to lift one's nose at so i, I imagine in my mind these people watching jesus that's why I, I use the word contemptuous they were contemptuous they saw jesus this is the idea of like well i'm sure you did something to deserve it have you ever felt that have you ever seen someone get arrested or something horrible happen to them and in your back of your mind just like man if they didn't smoke that would have happened to them they would have gotten the vaccine. I'm sure that wouldn't have happened. It's contemptuous. They wouldn't have voted for Trump, and that wouldn't have happened. If they wouldn't have voted for Biden. That this wouldn't have happened. That's contemptuous. It's a mindset of just looking at somebody with this utter disdain, self-righteous disdain. It's a it's a it's a response, and I think it's sort of a way of trying to find someone else to blame. In a very, very grave and tragic scenario. And I think to some degree, this is part of who we are as human beings. It's the, it's the dirty part. It's the dark part of who we are as human beings. We want to find somebody to blame. Uh, in the idea or the psychology of crowds, it's called scapegoating. You ever seen a, a crowd of, of people? And what's the difference between like a crowd and a mob? Well, crowd is just a group of people. Uh, but, but a mob, what happens is they're incited by some common goal. It's kind of like when you go to a concert. You know, and at the concert, they're like, who loves you, Central Coast? And the entire audience responds, we love you. You know, it's just like, what's happening there? It's, it's the psychology. It's the psychology of a, of a crowd of people. They're being united around a certain idea or concept or answer or response. Uh, it's what we see within the context of Jesus, that they were united to say, he must have done something wrong. We must do to him what wrongdoers have coming to them. So it's this contemptuous response that they have to Jesus. So number one, we see people that were shocked and stunned. Secondly, we see within this crowd people having this sort of self-righteous snobbery. He deserved it kind of a mindset. Thirdly, we see people, <laughs> this is kind of funny, playing games. I don't think they were video games. They were just playing games. Let's check it out. It says, the soldiers, they mocked him, offering sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And it's interesting, the word for mock is the Greek word empayaso. If you're familiar with Spanish, the word payaso literally means what? Clown. They're clowning around. They're literally playing games. Just a little bit earlier, it says that they actually rolled dice to see who gets Jesus' garment. They're literally playing games at the foot of the cross. They don't know what else to do. Here's a dying man bleeding, defecating himself. What do we do? 
I don't know, let's play, let's play a game. Again, to me, it, it just it speaks to the, the ill-equippedness that we have to deal and to manage deeply traumatizing circumstances. And then the fourth response here, we see one of the criminals that was hanged next to Jesus. Again, we know from the story that there are two of them. It says, one of the criminals who hanged there uh, railed against him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And the word railed literally translates as blaspheme. He blasphemed Jesus. So again, whatever, however you think of the word blaspheme is what this guy was doing. So on the one hand, you have people shocked, stunned, blown away, trying to figure out, trying to make sense what in the world is happening. This guy just was healing people three days ago. Now he's on the cross. Enemy of the state. Public enemy number one. Others are just like, I'm sure he deserved it. I'm sure he deserved everything I had coming to him. Another group of people were like, I don't know what to do. Let's play a game. Another thief in this context, he's just like basically giving the middle finger to the Son of God. And then we're actually told of another guy, which, again, we will come up to in the following weeks. But there's another criminal that he actually responds to Jesus by saying, truly, this must be the Son of God. He responds out of faith and confidence. And, you know, it's interesting within the context because he, he's a criminal. He's deserving. If anybody's deserving of the punishment that they're getting, it's these two criminals. One of the criminals uh, responds blasphemously against Jesus. The other criminal is just kind of like, dude, we deserve this. He doesn't. So that's the big idea in terms of, like, how the people had responded to tragedy. Again, I would even just say in terms of a humanizing type of way, it's not too dissimilar how you and I tend to respond. Um, we try to make sense of deep traumatic suffering and try to figure out ways to deal with it. Now we see how Jesus responds to this tragedy. And I think this is important to just really pause real quick and just uh, get a little bit of a uh, historical context as to what is crucifixion exactly. Um, I want to make some sense of this. And to do that, I want to uh, listen to the theologian and gal by the name of Fleming Rutledge. She has some incredible things to say. Here's what she describes. She goes, everyone knew what it looked like, what it smelled like, what it sounded like. That's crucifixion. She said, it's the horrific sight of a completely naked man in agony. The smell and the sight of bodily functions taking place in full view of all. The sounds of their groans, the labored breathing going on for hours, and in some cases, days. For Jews and Gentiles alike, a crucified person was as low and despised as is possible to be. Crucifixion sent an unmistakable signal. This person you see before you is not fit to live. There is nothing religious, nothing uplifting, inspiring about a crucifixion. She goes on to say, I think it's up there. But on the contrary, it, is, it was deliberately intended to be obscene in the original usage of the word, the English Oxford English, the Oxford English Dictionary suggests disgusting, repulsive, filthy, foul, abominable, loathsome. That's what crucifixion is. I don't know what you think about crucifixion. We actually get the English word uh, excruciating from that very exact same Greek word, excruciating. When we talk about something extremely painful, um, the New Testament writers actually would say that the, the crucial event, even the word crucial, literally means essential, pivotal, comes from the same word crucifix. And the, the big idea is that they're saying that this event that we are about to begin to spend some time thinking about over the next several weeks is literally the crucial event that changed the course of history. 
That's how important it is. That's why we take time to just pause and reflect and consider on this season and within this moment what is happening here, why it's so significant to us. So with that being said, how did Jesus respond? Because I think this is important. Again, the first of seven different words that Jesus says are these. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is in the midst of Jesus literally facing his tormentors, the people that are there mocking him, the people that are there uh, shunning him or wagging their heads at him or lifting up their noses against him or playing games that they're at his feet. Jesus, in the midst of this incredible, lonely, tormenting moment, says something that's completely unexpected. He asks God his Father to forgive his enemies. So two things that kind of stand out to me. Number one is the confidence of Jesus in his Father. The confidence of Jesus in his Father. I think it's really important to just note the kind of the big E on the I chart that Jesus calls God his Father. What's happening to Jesus right now? The, the, the worst, most possible circumstance that could have ever happened to anybody's human existence. Uh, again, crucifixion was not just simply a way of killing somebody. It was that, but it was that with and layered by uh, various forms of public shaming. Uh, it was getting a, cr- a crowd or a mob around to rally to say, this guy is the enemy, let's lob insults and ridicules at him and make fun of him. So it was not uncommon for a naked human being that's hanging on the cross to have uh, consistently being made fun of and shamed in that moment. It was, again, the big idea behind it. But it was also an example to say, basically by Rome, hey, the, the, the pathway of this criminal Don't any of you ever even think about going this path because this is the end result. This is where it will lead you. And it was a deterrent, obviously. It was a pretty strong deterrent. And here's Jesus enduring all of this in this moment. And he cries out, Father, forgive them. But in this moment, again, in our culture, it's very common today. Just have any form of suffering and then simply dismiss God. Shake a fist at God. Turn away from God. Run from God. All of these things are common stories that oftentimes we enter into. And again, I think there's a place of wrestling with our faith and so on and so forth. I'm not dismissing that. If you're in that place, glad you're here. My hope would be that you continue to press in and wrestle and ask questions and find uh, mentors around your life, not just simply peers who have gone through similar things. Find someone that has maybe a little bit of uh, a longer life of trusting Jesus, a little bit more, you know, hardships and challenges under their belt throughout life. And uh, listen to their voice, have them pray for you, find other people to come around you if you have no faith. Let the faith of other people help bring you back to a place of stability and hope and healing. But the point that I would make is this, is that Jesus cries out to his Father. It's really important to note that this is one of the things that makes Christianity so distinct from any other religion on this planet, is a belief in a personal God who's like a, like a daddy, a good daddy, one who cares. This is not some cosmic impersonal force. And again, I, I know it's really popular and common today in our culture to, you know, the, the idea to just kind of think of, well, I believe in some sort of cosmic, eternal spirit force that kind of lives up there, out there. Every once in a while, I'll tap into it or, you know, do a, yeah, you know, some form of uh, means to get in contact with this entity or being. And so hopefully maybe they might guide me or, you know, thank your lucky stars or whatever the case is. But here's, here's the problem with, with natural forces. Forces do not care if you exist. 
Forces don't care about your feelings. Forces have zero empathy or sympathy or compassion. They're incapable of that. A quasar does not care. A black hole is not concerned about whether or not you have stress over the fact that you are worried about school right now. Uh, you, you get the idea. These Gravity does not care that you just broke up with your girlfriend or you went through a divorce. It doesn't care about you. But a father does. And Jesus in this moment turns to his father and says, Father. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But this is so significant because I don't know where you're at or what type of your experience that you've had with religion or any other forms of Christian versions. But my hope today would be that you would, if anything, begin to see the heart of God as a father that actually cares about you. Cares about the pain, the hardship, the struggle, the, the difficulty, the trauma, the tragedy that you are in the midst of right now. He's a father that cares about you. And if Jesus can call upon him in the midst of his trauma... How much more can we in the midst of ours? So the invitation is for us to just maybe step back and consider. And if you don't even have that relationship with God as a father, please, if anything, just know it's available to you right now in this place. We want to pray for you. That's part of the whole point of us gathering together and creating space. We want to pray with you, pray for you, that you would come to know the goodness and the kindness of this God that actually, truly, deeply cares for you. Secondly, I noticed the kindness of Jesus towards his enemies. The kindness of Jesus towards his enemies. So again, he prays for his executioners. This is like mind-blowing to me. That here's Jesus having the most atrocious form of offense being done against him. And yet, even in the midst of this, his prayer is direct for them. Father, forgive these. They don't understand what's happening. You can even say that Jesus, in fact, even prior to this, Jesus talks to this crowds of people and he's, you know, they're kind of weeping and he says, don't weep for me, but weep for your, your sons and your daughters. And, and the big point that he's making is that most of you guys just do not understand what's happening here right now, but this is part of God's plan. Part of God's plan is that he would come into this world and take upon himself the suffering, the pain, the hardship, the betrayal, all that you and I go through upon himself. This is the exact opposite, mind you, of a God that's distant, a God that's indifferent, a God that's apathetic to your pain. This is the depiction, the embodiment of a God that says, whatever it is that you're going through, I've been there. I know what it's like. I felt pain. I've walked that path. I faced death. I've overcome it. I'm inviting you to follow me to overcome it as well. So this Wednesday, Christians literally around the globe will enter into a season of what we call Lent. Some of you are familiar with it. It's called Ash Wednesday. And what's crucial about this celebration, even though, again, this is not necessarily a biblical holiday, it's one that was kind of formed and framed after uh, the, the canon of Scripture, probably within the, I don't know, first four centuries of the Christian church. But the big idea behind it was this idea of coming together. And Ash Wednesday, we put ashes traditionally upon your forehead. The the idea behind that was to basically connect you with the fact of mortality. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You and I as human beings, we're frail, we're mortal. We're frail, meaning that life is filled with fragileness, 
anything had happened in an instant, all of a sudden tragedy can befall us. We weren't expecting something to come. Uh, even the relationships we have, as durable as we might think that they are, in an instant they could change our health, no matter how durable you may think you are, no matter how invincible you might feel at this very moment, something can happen instantaneously. Again, it's not to you know, bring about a, a, a doom and gloom type thing, but it's, the, it's a fact of just facing the reality that we live in a world that's not only with fragile human beings, but at some point, it's mortal. We will all die. God bless you. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that all of us face us. And as easy as it is, is to kind of duck out of this and not want to have to face it or to find some form of distraction to remove ourselves from it. I would say, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's not a healthy way to approach it. A more healthier way is to face the fact of our mortality. That yes, life is fragile. Yes, relationships are frail. Yes, my health might change in an instant. Yes, I am mortal. But that's not the end of it. Because what Christians do is they are doing all of this with with a way of precipitating, of building their heart and their confidence up into what we celebrate as the Resurrection Sunday, Easter. That even though we're frail, even though we are all mortal, even though we will all die, in Jesus we have this hope that that is not the end. Resurrection, new life, is our great hope. And this is exactly why this season is so important, why we need this message more than ever. I honestly think, as I've kind of sat back and tried to make sense of what's happening in our world, A, I've realized I can't make sense of it. It's too big for me. It's way beyond my comprehension, way beyond my ability to comprehend it all. But the point that I would make is this. There's something that has become very clear to me is that I I actually think that one of these days, maybe 100 years from now, historians will look back on this moment of our existence and say, that was when, that was when life in the West was changing. That was when something new broke forth, came undone, that was shaped, reshaped. It was a different world that was coming forth. And again, for good or for worse, I don't really know. But the point that I would make is this, is that something has changed. In our world. And it's still continuing to change. And that's frightening. Anytime there's change, that's frightening. Anytime the earth beneath our feet begin to shake, that's frightening. That causes oftentimes to step back and try to assess and make sense of like what's happening in our world, what's happening in my life, what's happening with my, 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 my income and what's happening with my family, what's happening with my relationships, what's happening in politics, what's happening around the world. All of these things cause us to step back when our world begins to be shaken. The book of Revelation, some of you guys are familiar with this, verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, describes the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I think it just might be interesting to kind of point this out, that most of you or some of you might be familiar with this. There's four horsemen that were identified by the writer John in the book of Revelation. Uh, the four horsemen are actually all color-coded, which is kind of cool, red, white, black, pale. But each one of them represents another type of movement on planet Earth. So number one, one represents conquest. One of the horsemen goes out with the distinct aim of conquest, overcoming, imperialism, you might want to call it. Secondly, another one comes forth with the purpose of violence and war. Another horseman is one that comes bringing famine. Another one is one that brings pestilence and death. And, you know, it's, it's odd. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that this is a direct moment that we're living in, but it could be. But the point that I would make is this, is that throughout all history, these four horsemen, have been unleashed upon planet Earth. 
at various stages, at various moments. In fact, I would even go so far as to say what the book of Revelation tells us is that all of these are variations of what the Bible describes as, as Babylon. Babylon. Babylon arises and appears in all forms throughout history. Different iterations, different versions. Maybe at one point you might even say that the, uh, the English Empire was a form of Babylon. The Russian Empire might be like a form of Babylon. You might even say American Empire is like a form of Babylon. But the point that I would make is this, is that throughout history there have been always these movements of human empire that have gone forth to say, we've got power, we've got the ability, we know what we're doing, we know what's up, and we're going to go forth and make a better world for somebody. Typically for those elites at the top, and the rest just kind of fall in line. But that, by definition, is Babylon. And the thing with Babylon throughout all history is Babylon always makes promises of a good life. And it might come in, again, various packages, universal health care, economic prosperity, food options, organic, free trade coffee, sexual liberation, have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, take up whatever shape or form that you would desire, comfort, equality, equity. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what Babylon can only ever always deliver is conquest, violence, war, famine, pestilence, and death. I want you to contrast that with the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And not just simply the kingdom, but the king. Because what Jesus does is he puts himself in the light for all the world to see in this context of the cross by saying, this is what I, the king of an unshakable kingdom, have come to bring forth through my death, my sacrifice, me giving my life for the world that is filled with deep sense of brokenness. He lays his life down. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews writes this, and I want to finish with a photo that I'll show you guys. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, if you want, you can write it down or you can just listen to it. He says, may we be looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised its shame. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father on the throne of God. Then he goes on to say to each one of us, those that are seeking to be faithful to Jesus, he says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. Consider him. Theater him. Look at him. What does it speak to you? That Jesus, in his body, endured such hostility. He goes on to say that there's an aim in our looking at Jesus. He goes on to say, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle. The story of Jesus is intended to anchor us, to tether us to hope. <laughs> that as and because if Jesus the king, representing a brand new kingdom, not Babylon, not one that makes great, grandiose promises, but can never ultimately, with any form of eternality, make good on those promises, but will always end in war, pestilence, oppression, destruction, death. But this king Jesus, who literally was the victim was in the midst of, he was in the teeth of the beast of Babylon, 
Only in Jesus' day, the iteration of Babylon was known as Rome. And its king, its emperor was called Caesar. You guys all know that because you guys are all history buffs. But the point that I would make is this. Here's Jesus in the teeth of this world militaristic superpower. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The writer of Hebrews finishes with this little statement. He says, may we be filled with gratitude for receiving his kingdom that cannot be shaken. Just pause and think about this. I think that anything, what we have seen over the past few years, is how shakable the kingdom is that we live in. What that means, it's uncertain. Where do you put your hope? What kingdom are you looking at right now and saying, man, if only this political party gets into power. I mean, we're talking real power. If they have power of the house, they have power of all sorts of other legislation. If they can get into power, then, then we'll finally arrive to some degree of utopia. What are we looking for? What are you looking for? What I want to encourage you to think about is that that's been the pipe dream for thousands of years, over and over and over again. I mean, what do you, what do you think when, when Caesar came into an area, people were actually like, man, maybe if Caesar gets in here, maybe if Caesar's power goes forth, maybe if Caesar's militaristic machine goes forth and brings forth peace, we will finally have everything that we want for. Guys, it's just a constant over and over again recycling of the same pipe dreams. What the writer of Hebrews is just inviting us to take a look at is an entirely different kingdom that's not sourced on planet Earth, that's not influenced by Babylon, but actually was crushed by Babylon because it posed a rival kingdom and came out on top of Babylon. That's the kingdom that Jesus says, I've come to offer. That's the kingdom that countless Christians throughout history have devoted themselves to and found hope in. So I want to finish with a little picture. I'm going to have Mike come on up in the team, but I want to show you this. And I want to make a real quick comment on it. So this past week, um, this guy, his name is Benjamin, a friend of mine. I want to read you a little statement, and then I'll finish with some thoughts on this. Uh, this picture was actually taken just a few days ago. They live in the heart of Ukraine. Literally around them, shelling was happening. And the question is, what do we do? Do we have the wedding? Do we postpone the wedding? Do we run for our lives? Do we flee the country? What do we do? And they said, let's, let's have the wedding. And then he posted on Instagram, this early as Facebook, this is what he said. Let me read to you. He says, another day and we are alive. Praising our king and not bowing down to the little devil king. We had a wedding today and we rejoiced and we danced because light is not afraid of darkness. Christ is the light of the world and will drive away darkness. And we, as the bride of Christ, will be with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. No army can change this. God is our refuge and strength. What I want to challenge you with is how ought we to live in the midst of a world that's filled with shaking and chaos? I would suggest to you this. This. That's bold defiance. That's a way of saying we're not going to kowtow to the powers that be to the demonic forces that are influencing our world around us. We will not live in fear. We will not run in cowardice. We will not pick up a sword and kill people. Because, again, I'm, I'm, I want to be really careful here. I'm not saying that there's not this, I'd have a whole other sermon if I were to talk about just war and so on and so forth, but that's not what I'm talking about. Or defensive 
life, family, property, yada. I'm not talking about that. I'm just simply saying the natural go-to inclination is not one to go out and slaughter those who have slaughtered you. It's to have a wedding. It's to drink some wine. It's to celebrate life. It's to worship the king who faced death in the eyes until it sucked everything out of him, even his own life. But then he rose again. And from the grave, he says, follow me. I'll bring you into this new life. Some of us will wake up and say, I want this king. I want this king more than anything. I will follow him all the way through this Babylon, this current landscape of Babylon and Babylonian rule and Babylonian empire, whatever iteration or form it takes right now, whatever it morphs into over the next five years, and I will follow this king because he alone is good. And he proved his goodness by dying on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So as we go to the table now, as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, as we lift up our voice in song, I want for us to do this with maybe a fresh new vision and understanding of not only the goodness of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, but also the truthfulness of Jesus. That he invites us to receive his kingdom, and not just his kingdom, but him as king. Many in our world, they love aspects of the kingdom of Jesus, but they don't love him as king. That's the distinction between a Christian and someone that just wants a good life. A Christian is one that says, I love the king. He gave his life for me. Because he gave his life for me, I will give my life to him.